Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 tonight, although we'll be bouncing around a little bit throughout the book for the next couple of years, maybe. detected a slight bit of disappointment when I said we were moving away from doing and living theology, but the fans of that, the you three fans of that series, don't have to worry because we're going to continue with some theology, the theology that we began to develop in that series will continue in Hebrews in, in a robust way, I think. So let's take a couple moments to prepare for Catharismon ton amartion. Tonight's message. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity that you've granted us in your gracious intention that we would gaze as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and be transformed to another increment of glory as by the spirit of the Lord in whom we depend totally to enlighten the eyes of our heart. We ask these things and we present ourselves to you with gratitude and confidence that you have in store for us great doses of grace tonight through this wonderful epistle, this sermon in an epistle, which has as much startling relevance and pertinence to our time as it did when you first inspired this writer. For that, we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. A high Christology is what scholars call it. When you have a heavy emphasis on his divinity. So it became, I guess, fashionable to call it a high Christology. And that's a good definition for Hebrews Christology because he lays a heavy emphasis on his divinity. But a beneficent Christology emphasizes his human nature, his suffering for the benefit of human beings, and in this case, his benevolent priesthood. In fact, jumping ahead a little, Hebrews two seventeen to 18 says this, this is why he had to become like his siblings, brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested, he's able to come to the aid of those who are being tested. In Romans, the peak description of the promeity of God, which is God's being radically for us, Paul makes the point that Christ, the one who died, and beyond that, who was raised up, is now and forever at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. That verse flows right into Hebrews, and it's a truth that's elegantly elaborated there. It's a vital part of its beneficent Christology. Now, we have the advantage here in Tetelestai Phalanx of having considered in some detail the initial exordium of Hebrews. The exordium is a rhetorical way of describing an introduction. There's an initial introduction in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and the exordium, as it's called, really goes all the way maybe to 2, 4. And we started that in Doing and Living Theology. So we've had the advantage in beginning 
Hebrews to have considered in some detail the initial exordium of that epistle during doing and living theology. And that's a series of teachings, and I want to assure people who may miss it already, which actually morphed into and in effect continues in this present theological exegesis of Hebrews. The opening exordium, E-X-O-R-D-I-U-M, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, is what I would say conceptually crowded. It contains both a high Christology and a beneficent one. And in this little passage, this little exordium, 1, 1 to 3, actually holds the entirety of the expositional essence of Hebrews and Nucci, and Nucci, which is a Latin phrase for in a nutshell. As such, it encapsulates the confession of our faith with which the writer urges his readers to boldly persevere. For the content of Hebrews is both exposition, kind of teaching, and exhortation, warning, and encouragement, the impartation of incentive, both negative and positive. As our friend, and I call him our friend because he is definitely not only my friend, but the friend of the phalanx, Pastor Mark Whitmer from Waco, Texas, wrote to me recently and said, quote, the sober warnings are just as needed as the gracious insights. He's already started on this epistle. The sober warnings are just as needed as the gracious insights. And he's very perspicuous in this. It's very true. And here it is, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Now, this is going to change from time to time because the more I look at this, the more I see accurately what it's saying, and I may tweak it every time I look at it. So... Right now, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 goes like this. In many and various ways, long ago, God, who spoke to the fathers provisionally in the prophets, in these last days has spoken to us definitively, meaning fully and finally, in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe We're talking about a high Christology here. Who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact self-representation of his reality. That's hypostasis. Who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. Who has made purification for sins. That's the one I want to really look at tonight, that phrase, who has made purification for sins, and then this, as importantly, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. What a crowded field this is. What a dense passage that glorifies our Lord. Now, we have also launched Hebrews, and I'm speaking specifically to you, the phalanx, those who have been with me since we came to the Alamo, I think, what, 10, 11 years now ago, on the 14th. We've also launched Hebrews with the distinct advantage of having a go at John's gospel, which we called, remember, the fourth G, John's apocalypse which we called Rev the Book. And we've gone through a rather wide inspection of the body of Paul's epistles, called that Better Call Paul, followed by a specific exposition of Paul's epistle to the Romans called Reading Romans with the Light On. All of these will aid us immeasurably in the interpretation and understanding of Hebrews. So it was all worth it for many reasons. 
A crucial discovery is that in all these aforementioned biblical studies, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the heart and at the very epicenter as God's Lamb. In fact, that's been probably the prime insight when we put all these together. In John, for example, the fourth gospel, he is explicitly introduced by John the baptizer as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's narrative, therefore, it begins with the Lamb. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the exclamation, not only of John the Immerser, the Baptist, to those within the sound of his voice, it is also the proclamation made by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to the whole world. John's gospel, as it's called, reaches a peak. Its narrative reaches a peak with Jesus on the cross, having uttered the word tetelestai. Forms of that word from the teleo group are extremely significant in the interpretation of Hebrews. Then in the narrative, the Roman soldiers who came to break the legs of the crucified criminals in order to expedite their deaths Notice that Jesus was already dead when they approached him. Consequently, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' chest cavity with a javelin, causing the immediate outflow of blood and water. At this point, the author inserts his own sober observation, which he was there seeing. Now, he who saw this solemnly testifies. His testimony is dependable, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things happen just this way, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. The scripture that was fulfilled had explicitly to do with the Passover lamb or the Paschal lamb, whom the Jews in Goshen in the days of the Exodus, just before their Exodus, were to eat in their house. And it was plainly required that they were not to break any bone of the Paschal lamb. For this was according to all the regulations of the Passover, as Numbers 9.12 teaches. Moreover, Psalm 34.19-20 identifies the Lamb with the righteous one to whom many adversities come and whom the Lord delivers from them all. And what does it say in Psalm 34.20? The Lord protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. All of John's gospel then is an elaboration of, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The narrative doesn't end with his death. We see the Lamb standing again having been raised from the dead in John chapters 20 and 21. The Lamb of God so richly testified to in John's gospel is also at the heart of John's apocalypse, which we know more popularly as the book of Revelation. John, the author of this apocalypse, sees a lamb as if he had been slaughtered, but who was standing in the midst of the circle of presbyteroi, Elders, between the everlasting living beings and the heavenly throne. In the climax of John's visions, when he sees the new Jerusalem, he looks to find the temple in it. He doesn't find it. 
And he has the shocking insight that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The same is true in Paul's writings, a little more subtly. Altogether, they can be taken and read as a single apocalypse, a single disclosure of Jesus Christ and him resurrected, elevated, and exalted, having been crucified. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul announces, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The Passover is the Paschal Lamb. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, this Christ, our Paschal Lamb, is the firstfruits of the resurrection. He stands as the living guarantee of the bodily resurrection of all of humanity and their participation in Jesus' immortal and incorruptible life and livingness. Jesus is the one in whom all are to be made alive. He is the one who reigns until all his enemies are placed under his feet by the Father. He is the one who, in the end, hands the kingdom over which he reigns even now to God, his Father, who then becomes all in all. Though Paul rarely explicitly refers to Christ as the Lamb of God, his entire body of epistolary writings are saying, in effect, the same thing that John the Immerser announced. Look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've seen in addition that at the very heart and center of Romans, where the announcement is shouted, as it were, God is for us. We have the elaboration of this and declaration that God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all. And we understand this to be fulfillment of the promise that Abraham made to Isaac, whose son was spared. and whose son God did spare. Abraham said to him, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Now, I said all that to say that the same is true in Hebrews in a way that proves even more striking, more revealing, more incentive imparting to us. Together, these studies have the power to impart the kind of forward momentum that can hold us to our course in which we are headed for a full apprehension of Jesus, our Savior, and the full formation of Christ in us. Consider again the initial exordium, allowing a heavy emphasis to fall on the clause who has made purification for sins, who has taken away the sin of the world. Let's read it again. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Slightly expanded, capture the sense. In many and various ways long ago, God, who spoke to the fathers provisionally in the prophets, In these last days has spoken to us definitively in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact self-representation of his reality who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective who has made purification for sins. Katharismon ton hamartion, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. So consider first 
that God has spoken with finality. That's what it means when I say definitively in a son. Not in fragmentary ways, not by many symbols and speech acts, but definitively and finally in a son. Namely, his uniquely divine son, who is the capital R reality of the father's own substance. As we learned in theology, he was begotten, not made, eternally proceeding from the father and of the father's own substance. Who is the Shekinah, and we'll see this word, it's never used in the Bible, but it is used in the Targums, Shekinah, it's a significant word, or the visible radiance of the Father's glory, he himself is that. Who is the perfect self-representation of the Father, consider that he is the one whom God appointed inheritor of all things. He's the one through whom God made the universe. He's the one who upholds the universe, moves all that happens in the flow of history to a benevolently intentioned and universal objective. As we're going to see more clearly, even in Hebrews. And as we have seen already in the doctrine of the mystery. This same son is the one who made purification of sins and who has sat down at the right side of the majesty in the highest of heights. Heaven has its heights. Even as Pittsburgh, the area has Brighton Heights, Stanton Heights. Many cities have areas they call heights. It doesn't indicate necessarily a higher echelon, of course, of people. But in heaven, there are the heights of Uranus, heaven. And in the highest height, there sits the majesty. And at the right of the majesty, there sits Jesus, the lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. And so, consider him is the urgency of Hebrews. So let's bear down on the phrase who has made purification for sins. And we'll ask a question, and I will be throughout this study, no doubt. When and how and in what capacity has the Son made purification of sins or purification for sins? Well, he could not make purification for sins merely as God's lamb. For if we were to reign, remain true to the type, it was the high priest in the Old Testament who made purification for the sins of Israel and for his own sins by offering the sacrificial lamb. Better still, it was Yahweh, the God of Israel, who made purification of sins via or through the high priest action and through the passion or the sacrifice of the lamb, the action of the priest, the passion of the lamb who was led, the action of the priest, the passion of the lamb. Moreover, the lamb can only be said to take away sins If he were more than a lamb. The accusation came to Jesus. How can you forgive sins? Only God. Can forgive sins. And he said well. Let me show you that God is in the business of forgiving sins and hint hint through me. To the same man he said take up your bed and walk. And the man did. So he'd have to be more than a lamb to take away sin. He would also have to be the high priest himself. In fact, because only God can forgive sins, 
then in some sense the lamb who is also the high priest has also in some sense to be God. So John says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin, and it's singular, of the world, meaning all of the world's sinfulness, all of the world's sins by the singular word sin. Not the sin or the sins of Israel only, but the sin or the sins, plural, of the world But only God can take away the sin of the world. So how can God, or how can John rather, say that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world? In Israel's history, no lamb ever took away the sin of Israel. God allowed the Israelites to be ceremonially purified through the offerings of lambs, of rams, of young bulls, of heifers, and of goats. So in only a symbolic sense, the sacrificial animal can be said to take away sins. For example, the scapegoat who ran off into the desert did so with the sins of Israel having been symbolically transferred to him through the laying on of hands by the high priest. So the scapegoat ran away with the sins of all of Israel. He took away the sins of Israel. But only symbolically, and only in a way that foreshadows an infinitely greater reality. Instead of engaging in more speculative theology, and that's what we're doing now, to me, speculative theology, where you speculate like I'm doing now, is profitable. We usually think of speculate and that, well, that's negative. No. I think speculative theology has its place. So does dialectical theology. So does systematic theology. But let's leave speculative theology for a moment and consider how this initial exordium reaches out deep into the text. I used to use the metaphor, fires arrows deep, from that place into the text. It reaches out into the text. It has loving tentacles that reach out. Because as I said, in Nuche, in a nutshell, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 contains the whole of the exposition of Hebrews. So let's consider how this initial exordium reaches out deep into the text and in fact, deep into the heart of Hebrews, where we find the Lamb of God. Now let's go to Hebrews 9. Sometimes when we meet, we're going to look at this in a way, and people may go away and say, we just taught the whole book of Hebrews. Well, in a way that may be true, but this is just a tiny increment. Hebrews 9.11, all the times when I refer to to passages in Hebrews, unless I tell you, It'll be my own translation. Hebrews 9.11. But now Christ has made a public appearance as a high priest of the good things, please note this, that have already come about through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands. That is to say, not of this creation speaking of his incarnation in whom the Shekinah was tented, speaking of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. The plural there for holy places indicates his direction to through the holy places to the holiest place of all. Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, having obtained redemption that lasts for the ages. In the context, we could say having obtained redemption that lasts not for a year, like the annual Feast of Atonement, 
but for the ages. For if the blood of he goats and oxen and the sprinkling of the ashes of a young cow makes outwardly pure. Verse 14, then how much more the blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish. This word right here, ah, without, the alpha privative means without. M, omega, O, M, omicron, O, N. Amoman, that means without blemish, without defect. And it's a word that describes the sacrificial animals and the requirement that they be without blemish or defect. It's the lamb here. It's at the heart of Hebrews. And he's the lamb. How much more? The blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit, purify our conscience. That's inside. That's not ceremonial purification. That's something that works right to the wiping away of guilt. Conscience. From dead works, washing away dead works, so that we can serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 then is a striking portrait of the Lamb of God. And it's located as it should be in the heart of the epistle to the Hebrews. There's a lamb at the heart of Hebrews. Offered himself to God without spot into your hands, Father. I entrust my spirit. He commits himself, dedicates himself, entrusts himself through the eternal spirit to his father. There are things in Hebrews that are not discovered elsewhere, but they're helped by looking elsewhere. could be argued that the author is saying to his readers, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or he could say, here's the Lamb of God. John said that. The immerser said that in 136 of John. He just said, look, there's the Lamb. But is this author saying, look, Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which the Baptist said in 129. Is he saying, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is the Hebrew author saying that? Well, let's consider another passage even deeper into this homily called Hebrews. Hebrews 9.24. My translation for not into holy places made by human hands did Christ enter, which are symbolic representations of the real. But into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God in behalf of us now to appear before the face of God in behalf of us. I like what he said in Matthew. Woe to anyone who abuses one of these little ones because their angels behold the face of my Father in heaven. How much more Jesus, the Son, higher than angels infinitely, beholding the face of his father 
to protect the little ones, which we all are. Now, I love what 25 goes on to say, nor did he have to offer himself often. As the high priest does, speaking of the old order, and please note that this is in the present tense, as the high priest does. I'm going to ask a question later and end with it. Why is this in the present tense? Is this still going on? Are these redundant rituals still being practiced when this epistle is written? It's in the present tense. Are they, these people who have received this epistle, are they witnessing this thing going on? Well, Christ has already offered himself once and for all. Is this still being practiced? One would shudder at the idolatry of such a thing, really, when you think about it. Well, that's a question. So it says, nor did he have to offer himself often as the high priest does. Habitually, when he enters into the holy places, meaning the holy places of the temple. Annually. With the blood of another. The priest goes in annually, speaking of Yom Kippur, with the blood, not of his own, but of another, a sacrificial animal. In that case, if it was like that, verse 26, Jesus would have had to suffer many times. If he was like the priest that had to go every year, then he would have been suffering every year since the creation of the universe. Let me just read it. For then he would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the universe. Well, how old is the universe? How many years? For that many times he would have had to suffer. But that's not how it is. He goes on to say, but as it is. Once for all. At the junction of the ages. Now, this is tricky. This word junction, suntalea, is tricky. And I've taken my stand in calling it junction of the ages because it suntalea means the end or the consummation, the culmination. But it also means the beginning of one epoch and the end of another. So the cross to me is the hinge upon which two ages swing. The end of one age, the beginning of another, so I call it the junction of the ages, the juncture of the ages. And I'll explain this more. We have a lot of time to deal with Hebrews, years-wise, I think. Well, I don't know, maybe Lord willing. So it says, but as it is, once for all, there's that blessed phrase again, at the junction of the ages means the end of one aeon and the beginning of another, he was revealed for the removal of sin. Now that's sounding like the taking away of sin, singular. The removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, not another, himself. Sins were not taken away by the actions of the priests of the old order or the high priest of the old order, but they were absolutely removed by Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. This is again is reaching out from the exordium and from that phrase who made purification for sins and sat down. No priest ever sat down. They were constantly standing, constantly offering sacrifices that could not take away sin. Hebrews 10, 11. Now, every priest, and you'll notice this is in the present tense again. Every priest, meaning of the old order, keeps standing day after day, rendering his service 
offering over and over again the same sacrifices which are never able to take away sins. But this priest, after offering a single sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You said, I thought he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Yeah, the majesty is God, his majesty. This one sat down because he had taken away sins, all sins for all time. So do you hear the reverberations from the immediate exordium, 1, 1 to 3? Do you hear the vibrations, the reverberations? This son, Jesus, this priest made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. The majesty of Hebrews 1, 3 is God. That's called a circumlocution. There's a significant elaboration on the description of the son and his purification of sins, as well as his having sat down at the right side of the majesty in the highest heights of heaven. That he made purification of sins means that he made expiation of sins, put them away so that they no longer exist made them not to be. It means that he effectively and forever removed them. Behold the Lamb of God who removed or took away sin, period. Not the sins of Israel. Not the sins of a part of humanity called the elect. But the sin of the world, sin, singular, all sinfulness. He appeared once for all for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, Paul the apostle had said elsewhere, what did he say? Elsewhere. He who knew no sin became sin. For us. So that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. And since one died for all. All died. I was thinking of John. And Mary. And the others. Who stood at the. Foot of the cross or close thereby. Then I thought of the criminals who were crucified with him. And I asked this question for intelligence. Who has the greater blessing? Those who were at the foot of the cross or those who were crucified with Jesus? I was crucified with him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there having the privilege of standing and looking and seeing him? No. I was in him. I was crucified with him. So were you. We could ask another question for intelligence at this little rest stop we've taken here. Does the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, as portrayed in Hebrews, reveal his universally saving significance? as it clearly does in Paul's body of writings and specifically in Romans, as we saw it plainly in the fourth G and rev the book. I don't want to be facile, so I'll give a careful and tentative affirmative to the question, especially if we take on board the expanded declaration that we see Jesus 
who by the grace of God tasted death for everyone. Name of our series, this is increment three, we see Jesus. We see Jesus, who by the grace of God tasted death for everyone. It seems that he made purification of all the sins of all the world for all time, making it possible that all things in the heavens on earth and earth being reconciled to God, that all things, when all times become contemporaneous, and all time becomes one time, they will savingly and gloriously be summed up in Christ. Still not done with Ephesians 1.10. Now in closing, I want to ask another question. Another question kind of hovered in front of me today in my study. And I've mentioned it again, or I mentioned it earlier. Here's the question. And this has to do with when the, the book of Hebrews is written, the epistle, the homily within an epistle. When doesn't necessarily answer who wrote it, but it tends to understand or give an understanding of who received it and maybe a little closer to when they received it. But then again, Maybe not. Here's the question. The writer speaks of the high priest of the old order. The order of Aaron, the order of the Levites. In the present tense. He says it as if these people are able to see this going on still. And it did go on until. A.D. 66 when the Romans surrounded and had a perimeter around the city, the sacrifice ceased. In AD 70, the temple was totally destroyed. Nobody was going to witness that happening again in that city. So it's a hint here. The writer speaks of the high priest of the old order doing in the present tense. Entering the holy place in the present tense. When he enters into the holy places annually with the blood of another, he speaks in the present tense of every priest of the old order standing present tense day after day. Rendering his service. By offering over and over again the same sacrifices which are never able to take away sins. Here's my question. Does this mean that the priesthood of the old order was still active when Hebrews was written? If so, then the temple was still standing and the readers were not only aware of the ongoing redundant actions of these priests but they may have in fact been witnessing them. They themselves may actually have been tested and tempted to go back under that system. That's all hypothetical. I'm striving to be maybe when I need to be hypothetical and striving not to be hypocritical. It means I'm trying to be a good theologian and not a politician. Does this mean that the priesthood of the old order was still active? If not, you say, well, it has to be. No, there's another thing called the vivid historical present where we're taken into the action, which was passed. As if, and it's presented as if it's present. This is something that's throughout. And the New American Standard Bible actually has it, the vivid historical present. We've studied it pretty extensively. Where you see Jesus doing something and it's in the present tense, but we know it's not presently happening. He's not presently glaring at people in a synagogue and telling a person to put his hand forth and heal it. And so... You see, I'm, I can't be quick to jump on this and answer it. 
see where my dilemma is in studying. And so it could be the vivid historical tense, meaning which represents the action of this older order of priests vividly as if it was ongoing in the present, but had, but had actually taken place continually in the past. But here's the ticket. Whether or not the action was currently ongoing when Hebrews was written, sent, and received, the picture presented, the portrait of priests continuing to offer sacrifices which can never take away sins, in contrast with one priest who had forever already made the once and for all sacrifice for sins, which had forever taken away those sins. That portrait of the dramatic and drastic distinction is almost cinematic. It's almost movie-like to watch. It's dramatic. So whenever this epistle was written, here's here's what I'm saying by this. Whenever this epistle was written and whenever this sermon was preached to whomever this sermon in an epistle was sent and when and whoever wrote it and preached it the contrast of this empty redundant and ineffectual action of priests of the old order And the once and for all and once for all time sacrifice of this one high priest, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is a dramatic and drastic difference and contrast. It's dramatic and drastic. Moreover, This forces the laser focus of this letter to be on this one, this son, this Jesus. He who is at our great, who is our great high priest and who is at once the lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. And thank you, Father. For you have done more than just teach us tonight. You have afforded us a vision of your son. And we see the scriptures now in a way that truly we with open face, not veiled. We all with open face can stare into the word and we see the lamb of God. We see the image of him in such a way that we are being transformed into his image from one degree from one increment to the next as by the spirit of the Lord. For the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is that liberty to be transformed. May this be the case every time we meet in studying Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus and father, we thank you that as Hebrews itself says, you are pleased with sacrifices 